Fantastic. Are you guys ready for the Word of God this morning? Uh, special welcome to those of you at City Campus. Uh, sorry I can't be with you there today, but you hear me from here. And those of you who are watching online, thank you so much for being a part of our community this morning. Well, we're going to continue our series in the book of Ecclesiastes. How many of you have been enjoying this series so far? You find it relevant? I think it's been an amazing time just exploring this book again. And this morning, I want to share with you something which I've entitled, The Snare of Success. And we go to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I'm going to start reading from verse 4 to verse 12, okay? Ecclesiastes chapter 4 from 4 to 12. Listen to what the wise man said. And I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better is one handful with tranquility or quietness than two handful with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, and yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls, and there's no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. That makes sense, right? But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And then he ended off with this beautiful statement, a threefold cord or a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Lord, I pray this morning that your word will become alive for us. May you send us away from this place after hearing your word with fresh insights from you so that we may live lives that are more effective, live lives that can advance your kingdom wherever you planted us. So use your servant to speak this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, thus far, the wise men have examined various issues of life that we have gone through over the last few weeks, and she seeks to answer that pertinent question, is life worth living? Now, with each observation, with, every time he observes something, he seems to strengthen his conclusion that life is meaningless, havel, a chasing after the wind, an exercise of futility. And all of you know by now that it is primarily due to his uh, under the sun, as long as I live perspective. That was the limit, limitation he put into his own observation. As, long, as he observed life from under the sun, which means earthly, as long as I live temporal perspective, then yes, life can be meaningless. And if you can recall, his search for satisfaction ended in disillusionment. His observation about times and seasons, remember a few weeks ago we talked about that, brought him a sense of fatalism. You know, that it's, it's all fated. And his encounter with injustice last week just drove him to despair and frustration. And now he's about to turn to the arena of work and success, okay? And he's about to explore, is there satisfaction through accomplishment? What if I can accomplish a lot of things in life? What if I can get success? Will it bring me satisfaction? 
And in verse 4, he begins by saying this, I have seen something. I've seen something. What, 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 what has a wise man seen? Basically, it is this. He saw people frantically running the red race. That's what he saw. He said, when I look at the world and I look at everything that's going on around me, I make this conclusion that I see people frantically running this thing called the red race. And I think we are all familiar with this term. Now, there are many different species in the animal kingdom. Some species can live peaceably, amicably amongst their own kind. But there are some that don't. There are some species of, of uh, animals that don't actually live together. Uh, some can exist harmoniously when they are put into community. But there are others that will end up jostling, you know, pushing, trampling, even eating one another up. Okay? And one of those animals is the rat. The rat is not a very communal creature. You put them together in a small space, they will all end up fighting one another after a while. And that is why when people observe what goes on in our human society, they also found that human beings, when you put them together, there's a tendency to lie, to cheat, to slander. People would murder and even kill to satisfy their own covetousness. Is that true? We see that, right, going on in society. And that's why we appropriately call this phenomena of humans jostling one another, you know, lying about one another. We call it the rat race. Makes sense. Because it flows, you see, the rat race. Someone described the rat race as this. We lick the boots of those above us, and then we trample on the faces of those below us, and then we can climb up the ladder. And that's what the rat race basically is. But I want you to know that the rat race phenomena is not new. In fact, it has Solomon way back, thousands of years ago, already saw it in his time. And he described it very vividly in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And what he observed was this. Why do people end up running this rat race? He said there are two reasons for the rat race. And you tell me whether is it true in your own experience. Number one, he said, people are engaged in this rat race because of envy. First thing he said, all this is because of envy. Listen to what he said in verse 4. And I saw that all labor and all achievement springs from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And the truth is this, none of us like to be outclassed, you know. There is this tendency to keep up with the Joneses. And we have observed this throughout every society. And that's how people end up, you know, buying the things we don't need with the money we don't have because we buy on credit just to impress the people we don't even know. And that's reality. That's life. Many people end up doing that. We buy things we don't really need with money we don't really have just to impress the people we don't really know. <laughs> you know, just to impress the people that actually don't quite care about us. And the root of it is what he said. The wise man said the root of it is envy. Envy. And interestingly, we notice that when, how does envy arise in our heart? It's because we had a tendency to compare ourselves with those that are better off than us. Is that true? Whenever we compare, we tend to compare upwards. We compare with people who are better off than us. So we end up with this sense of dissatisfaction. Because we're comparing with people better off than us, we end up thinking that I don't have enough. 
And seldom do we actually consider how much better off we are compared to those who are worse off than us. It's like somebody said, I used to complain I have no shoes until I met someone with no feet. Okay, if you've got no feet, what's the... having no shoes is not a problem now. See, wherever there is envy, gratitude will go out of the window. And he, the wise man made the first observation. He said, there is something here that I really think is meaningless. People engaging in the red race because of envy. Then he asked the next question. The second reason why people are caught up in this race is because of addiction. Envy gets us started. Addiction keeps us going in this red race. Look at verse 7 and verse 8 now. He says, Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone, right? He had neither son nor brother. There is no end to his toil, yet his eyes are not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. In other words, what he's saying is this. You know, because of envy, people run the red race. And then once we are in the red race, we keep running. And we run harder and harder. There never seems to be enough. Why? Because one thing, you are stuck. You are caught in it already. And for that reason, sometimes the rich are driven to become richer. And they can't seem to stop. And you and I know, we never have enough. There was a, I was reading up some about some of these people, and I, I read about a guy called John Getty. Some of us in my generation, you remember him, multi-millionaire. He's got huge mansions, you know, all over the United States or America. And, you know, but the funny thing is this, he's got many, many mansions everywhere, that, and, but in every guest room in all these mansions, he installed a coiner phone. You know what a coiner phone is? Back in my time, you know, when you want to make a phone call, you've got to put a coin inside. He installed coiner phone in all his guest rooms so, so that when his guests want to make a phone call, they've got to put a coin in. And then we ask ourselves, what? What, what? Why would a millionaire want to do that? The only reason I can think of is, I think it's irrational already because it's an addiction. It's a compulsion. You cannot stop yourself. The man who chases after wealth will end up becoming a slave to it. Uh, Ron Seidel wrote a book uh, some years ago entitled Rich Christians in the Age of Hunger. And in his book, he made a statement that goes like this, and I like it. He says, We madly multiply more sophisticated gadgets, larger and taller buildings, faster means of transportation, not because they enrich our life, but because we are driven by an obsession for more. And this is the cardinal sin of Western civilization. We just can't stop it. It's a compulsion. And the wonder Solomon said in verse 8, there is no end to his toil, yet he's never satisfied with the wealth he has. For whom is he working so hard and denying himself any pleasure? I think the word is addiction, compulsion, a drivenness. And this is what keeps people in the red race once we are in. And we keep running and we keep running harder and harder. But at the same time, the wise man make a very astute observation. He observed that there is a group of people, they are running this red race and they're running harder and harder. But at the same time, on the other end of the spectrum, there are those who cannot keep up 
Are you with me? There's one group that is running, and they're running it hard, but at the same time in society, we end up with also with those that cannot keep up with this. And then they begin to drop out, and we call them the dropouts. And in every society, you'll find them. There's one group that will be highly successful, really running this race, and then there are those who just give up. They said, I cannot keep up, so they drop out. And they form two extreme ends of a pendulum, okay, that is swinging. And verse 5, talk about this group, this other group at the other end of the spectrum. They have dropped out of the race. And you look at verse 5 now. It says, the fool folds his hands and then ruins himself. What is it talking about? It's talking about those who actually shy away from the red race and the, and, and the materialism that goes on. And then they allow themselves to swing to the other end. They just drop out. They say, I can never make it. I can never keep up. So why bother? I just fold my hands, I destroy myself. And they fold their hands, which is a picture of not doing anything. How many of you know that? Right? You, you fold your hand means what? I'm not doing anything. And they destroy themselves with laziness. So you have one end that is contending for more all the time. But the other end is when they fold their hands and say, I give up. And then they become lazy. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 6 to 11 actually warn us against this. Warn us against slothfulness with the same figure of speech holding, folding your hands. Now, listen to what the wise man says in Proverbs 6 now. Go to the end, you sluggard or you lazy fella. Consider his ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, and yet it stores his provisions in summer, gathers his food at, at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come on you like a bandit, scarcity like an armed man. So you see two extremes that the wise man has observed. On one end is the materialist that is so caught up in the red race and so addicted that he's keep running. Okay, but on the other end are those who have dropped out, the lazy, that is, the, the sluggard who is caught in laziness. Okay, so you see these two extremes. So what then is the wise man's advice to us? Now, please understand that Solomon is supposed to be the wise one, right? The teacher, the preacher, the philosopher. And he has to offer the people a better way. He knows that both of these are not right. And he, we need to have a better way. So he tried to tell us and he gave us some advice. And he's telling us the answer is not in being driven the answer is also not in being lazy, but there must be a better way. The answer is to find balance. Okay, and that's why you'll find that the rest of it, he talks about it is better. It is better because he's trying to give us some good advice. And he gave us two pieces of advice that I think is very true. And let me outline them for you. Advice number one, he, after observing what goes on in society, he came up with this advice. Number one, and I challenge all of us to take this seriously. Number one is this, contentment is better than contention. And you find this in verse six. Listen to what he says here. After observing it, he challenges us to tell us this. Better is one handful with quietness than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. What is Solomon saying? Solomon is saying that the answer is not found in the extreme 
end of either the red race or being a dropout. But the answer is really found in the middle. It is not contention. It is not complacency. But it is contentment. It is better to be contented with what you have at the end of the day. Whatever you have at the end of the day, be contented with it and find rest to your soul than to have both hands striving and clamoring for more. Whatever God has blessed you with, my brothers and sisters, through your work, through your business, whatever you have at the end of the day, be content with it. Find rest to your soul. Find joy in what God has blessed you with rather than to have two handfuls contending for more. Even if it is half the amount, I'm happy, rather than to have that sense of dissatisfaction, the sense of I want more, and you're clamoring for it all the time. Uh, Proverbs 15, verse 16 and 17, put it this way. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasures and turmoil with it. And then give us this good advice. Better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. How many of you agree? Yeah, I, if I have to eat simple and be happy with my family, that's much better than if I, I can eat rich, but yet there's turmoil. There's strife going on. And many of us, we may not be eating fattened ox all the time. Maybe we are eating bean sprout every day, but we are eating it happily with our family. <laughs> I think there's greater joy there than to eat beef steak cured over 10 months and then you're fighting with your family all the time. Is that true? i rather better is one handful with quietness than two handfuls striving for more. And that is so true. The New Testament put it this way in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 to 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. How true. Right? The world always tells us about money, you know, easy come, easy go. But the Bible tells us here in 1 Timothy 6, it's naked you come, naked you go. I guarantee you that. It's true. Shakespeare, you know, um, in his book, King Henry V, the, the play, King Henry V, really illustrate this whole idea of contentment so beautifully, you know. Uh, in, in, in King Henry V, the king was actually dressed up as a commoner to walk around his own uh, city. Uh, why? Because he wanted to feel the ground, you know, what's happening on the ground and all that. And in the course of doing that, he met up with a farmer, and so the conversation started between the king and the farmer, and the, the farmer asked the king. He didn't know he was a king, so he asked him, so what do you do for a living? And then the, the, uh, the king said, since they are, they are becoming friends, he, said, he told him the truth. He said, oh, I'm a king. And then the farmer laughed and said, ha, you a king? Then where is your crown? So he was jokingly answered, so where is your crown? And I love the profound answer that the king gave. It goes like this. He said, my crown is in my heart, not on my head, not decked with diamonds and precious stones, not to be seen. My crown is called content, a crown that seldom kings enjoy. That's true, isn't it? The best crown you can wear is the crown of contentment. 
How many of you know, if you got contentment in your heart, you can live in a small little apartment and feel like a king? <laughs> Isn't that true? Because contentment is a beautiful thing. It's such a beautiful virtue. And can I challenge you, my friends, as we go through this pandemic, one of those things that will come out of it, and I think it's going to be true, and we are yet to see the impact, the economic impact of this, but when the full measure of it starts to unfold, um, we, there will be people, people will lose their jobs, businesses can close down, a lot of these things can happen. And one of those things that we will need to be able to, to go through this well is this virtue of contentment because we're going to have to make adjustments, some of us. We may have to make adjustments to our lifestyle. Uh, we may have to learn to do with less. And in times like this, I think it's important that we capture this beautiful... It's a, it's a good chance for us to relearn the art of contentment. And can I make this practical for you? You know, I, I feel like there are many... We can choose to live in different levels, you know, of uh, lifestyle. All of us do. Okay, now, if I can quickly run you through this, and the PowerPoint people may have to follow me on this. I'm, I'm making some adjustments. Huh? Uh, there are four, four levels, I think, that every one of us can choose to live our lifestyle. And in the, in, in, in the light of, if we really have this virtue of contentment, okay, it will help us to, to choose the right level. Okay, there are four levels that all of that people can, can live. Okay? The first is people who live above your means. There are some people who live above our means. These are the people who buy things we don't need, with money we don't have, just to impress people we don't know. So even though we cannot afford it, we must have it. And then we end up spending you know, more than is necessary and we chalk up a whole lot of, of, of our credit card debts and things like that. People who are living above our means. So we can end up with big possession but with even bigger debt, we end up with a lot of gadgets, you know, but no generosity because we already got nothing. We are living above our means. There's another level that we can, and no, none of us should ever go there, okay, to live above our means. The second level we can live is people who live with our means. So these are people who literally spend everything they have by the end of the month. And then we wait eagerly, you know, for the next paycheck to arrive. Our philosophy, very simple. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. So whatever I have, I spend. And then at the end of the month, we are like, can't wait for the paycheck to come. Not a very healthy way to live, really. Right? So I don't want to just, I don't want to live above my means. I don't want to live with my means. But the third level is good. And most of us are already practicing this. Right? We live within our means. We learn to live within our means. These are the ones who live with some degree of contentment, some degree of wisdom, and, we, we, but we, and then we make sure that we have something left aside for a rainy day. We like to be able to leave something behind for our children, right? And as the Bible teaches us, right, we, parents should lay up for children and, children and not children for parents. And it's true. We want to leave something behind. So these are the people who will give some thought to things like insurance and investments and stuff like that. Wonderful. If you are living within your means, praise God, that's wonderful. But can I challenge you to go to another level? Why don't we choose instead uh, to live below our means? Okay? It's a, 
the best place to be, I think, is when we can choose to live below our means. You see, the man who is skilled in the spiritual disciplines of simplicity and have understood the virtue of contentment, we can come to a point you know, where even though we can well afford something, we choose to do without it. Not because we cannot afford it, but it's because we choose to go without it so that we have more to share with others. Hello? You with me? I think we can choose to live below our means. We, that we come to somewhere along the way, we come to this point where we say enough is enough. You know, and, and we, we are not driven to upgrade every time a new model comes out. I don't feel a need for that. We are no longer feeling that compelled, you know, to own the latest design or the newest gadget. Not because we cannot afford it, uh, please understand. It's because we don't need it. Then we find a place of contentment in God. G.K. Chesterton, the Catholic theologian, put it this way. There are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less and less. You can accumulate more and more to try and get enough, or you can desire less and less. And at some point, we say enough is enough. Make sense? Can I afford to drive a Mercedes? Uh, okay, nothing wrong with driving a Mercedes. <laughs> okay, maybe let's, let's do it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's do it out. Okay, no more. You get my point? <laughs> I better not offend anyone. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you get my point. The wise men tell us contentment is better than contention. And my challenge to all of us here, and I believe God's blessed many of you here, and many of you have, God has blessed you with resources, with, the, with, with finance, with ability. That's fantastic. But what about we make it our goal to learn to live below our means? Like John Wesley teach us, you know, earn all you can. I'm not asking you to fold your hands and be lazy. I'm challenging you, earn all you can, save all you can, and then give all you can. That's the spirit of it. So I learn to live simply so that others may simply live and we give. Number one, contentment is better than contention. Here's number two, very important observation he made. Cooperation is better than competition. Cooperation is better than competition. You look at verse 9 to verse 12 now. He said, then he goes on to say this. Now, he, after he looked at the world of finance and all that, he, and he says contentment is better than contention. Learn to live below our means. And then he began to challenge us when he looked at community. And then he challenged us with this. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friends can help him up. Pity the man who falls, and there's no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A threefold cord is not easily broken. Now, please understand that this passage here is not dealing with free enterprise. Okay? It's not dealing with uh, business, but the focus is on community, okay? on one-to-one Rivalry. That's what he's talking about. So I'm not, he's not talking about business that you cannot compete with, a, with, a, with a, a, an, an, another company or another competitor. He's not talking about that. He's talking about relationship. Okay? Now, in a community, what the wise men observe is this. Cooperation is better than competition. And here, the wise man is putting it in the context 
you know, the way that this whole passage is written, the context of it is about two persons taking a journey together. That's the context, okay? And it's uh, putting in the context of men travelling together on a journey. And I think it's a perfect metaphor of life. So what he's saying is that, in effect, uh, life is a journey and it's better done with others, not done alone. Better done with others. Cooperation is better than competition. Better in what way? In four ways. Number one, in terms of work. Two, in terms of support mutual support, number three, in terms of mutual comfort, and then number four, in terms of protection. And let me run you through them one at a time. How important it is for all of us to realize the need for relationship, the need for just being in community. So important. Why is it better? It's because in terms of work, you get better productivity. Look at verse 9. He says, they have a good return for their work. Cooperation will help us to make up for each other's strengths and weaknesses. If we work together, okay, it results in good synergy. It results in better returns, better productivity. Two is better than one when it comes to work. And this is where we get the, um, the, the idea that one plus one is greater than two. Synergy. One plus one is greater than two. Me by myself may, may be able to produce X amount. Me and my wife it's no longer just producing 2x, but now we produce 3x because 1 plus 1 is greater than 2. You see, that's synergy. And he says there is great productivity there. You see, and, and my wife and I, uh, we are complete opposites. Huh? And those of you who know us, you know, we are complete opposites in terms of strengths and weaknesses. Now, I'm the one that likes to talk. She's the one that likes to listen. You know, she likes to cook, I like to eat. You know, she loves to serve, I love to be served. You know, so we are a great partnership, you know. <laughs> uh, I drown in details, you know. Give me details, I will drown. But she will swim in the details, you know. Oh, she love it. You know, every time I come home and say, oh, so-and-so is going to have a baby. First thing she say, boy or girl? I say, how do I know, you know? <laughs> when is the baby coming out? How do I know? I just know that she's pregnant, you know? <laughs> Those kind of, and we are very different, you know? She's very detailed. I am absolutely not detailed, but we, together, we have good teamwork. I'm the team, she's the work. <laughs> no, joking, joking, joking. No, just joking. <laughs> but... The bottom line is this, okay? Together, we are stronger. Together, we are stronger. Together, we can do a lot more, you see? So, in terms of work, there is better productivity. Two is better than one. In terms of support, there is better partnership. In terms of support, you know, community is wonderful. Look at verse 10, right? If one falls down, his friend can help him up. You see, when they're traveling in Palestine, and remember this is the context of traveling together, uh, in traveling in Palestine is not always easy. The reason is because the roads are often uneven and not level. It's therefore very easy to slip and fall. And what the wise man is telling us is this, if one is traveling alone and he falls, there is no one to pick him up. You know, I was preparing this and then my mind went back to an incident that uh, is kind of funny, but it's tragic at the same time. Uh, I, I, my mind came back to an incident that I was once in Singapore and I was at the, M, the 
the train station in Singapore, Orchard Road, you know, which is the busiest train station. Lots of people, lots of crowd, people walking in and out. And I was sitting there waiting for a friend and I saw this lady come out. She was a lady executive. I mean, obviously, she looked like a very high-level executive. Uh, she was carrying her Gucci bag and then her power suit, you know, all dressed up, really. I think she could be a lawyer or something like that. She, and she even had this power walk, you know, and carried a Gucci bag, wonderful suit and then power walk, you know. She was going like that. And she was talking on the mobile phone at the same time, you know. She was talking on the mobile phone and talking like that. And then suddenly, her, you know, she was wearing high heel shoes. Her high heel shoes got trapped in one of those drain gratings. You know, and she tripped and she fell, you know. And everything flying all over the place. And can you imagine how, how embarrassing that is? She just fell and with all these nice clothes and Gucci bag, everything all over the place. And the moment she fell, every eye turned to her because she was in the middle of Orchard Road MRT station. Everybody's looking at her. And then I noticed she did not even, she did not even get up to check whether she's injured or not. You know, all she did was quickly strap everything into her bag and then she quickly ran into the crowd and disappeared from the crowd. Then I was thinking to myself, the whole thing happened in a matter of seconds, you know. What happened? <laughs> and I think what is happening is this. She was totally embarrassed by what happened. And she can't wait to disappear. And then I don't know why, my mind started thinking, you know, what a difference it would make if she had a friend with her. The scenario would be very different. And I started imagining, you know, if she had a friend with her and then she fall, what would happen? The friend will immediately help her. Right, bring her up and then check her out. Are you okay? And then if they realize that she's okay, probably they'll both laugh. They say, "How well, funny! How you fall down!" And then they will have a good laugh. They will see some humor in this whole thing. But it's very different when you're alone. How many of you agree? And then it struck me, you know, true. When one falls down, the other one can help him up. It's true. In life, we really need one another. Whenever we have friends, whenever we have kindred spirits, whenever we have a community of people, if we ever get into trouble, there will be others that will help us up. We will never end up in a situation like that man who falls and there's no one to help him up. It's better in work, better productivity. It's better, you know, in, in support. We get better partnership. Now, it is better, number three, in comfort. Well, we have a better position if we have one another. Look at verse 11 now. It says, Also, if two lies down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? You see, when the travellers are travelling in Palestine, some, the distance are very long and sometimes they have to go, stay overnight. And it gets cold you know, in the Middle East, especially with desert condition. And in moments like this, a travelling companion is so necessary for survival. We can share the same blanket. We can keep warm by sleeping next to one another, back to back. The only way would be to carry more blanket, but that would add a lot to the load. So what do they do? How practical the Bible is. You know, it says that have you ever that if you can, if you're travelling together, you can lie down with one another to keep warm. Share the same blanket. Lie back to back, and it keeps you warm. And I tell you, it's true. Have you ever been in a situation where you are so cold that you really wish there was somebody there by your side that you could hug and you could hold on to? I did. Uh. 
many years ago, I, I, I was young and adventurous. I went to climb a mountain in, in Malaysia called Gunung Tahan. That is the highest peak in West Malaysia, highest peak. And we were all out there, and tra- um, a group of us, Boy Scouts, trying to climb this mountain. And the night before we ascended the final peak, which is wanted, we wanted to conquer that peak and break the, the climbing record, actually. So we all, we finally got to the final peak. We had to stay overnight before we scale it the next morning. And the last part before you reach the highest peak is a big open field. They call it the padang. In, in Malay, the word padang means field. It's a, really an open field amongst all the mountains. And because of that, it became a wind tunnel and the wind that blow through is super cold, you know, before you scale the, the peak. And that night, that day was a horrible day because it was raining. The whole day was raining. And we had to cross a few rivers, so everything we had was wet. Everything was wet. All the clothes we had, everything was wet. And it was so cold that night because the wind was blowing through the tunnel. And that night was the most miserable night I ever spent. It was so cold. It's not funny. And there was nothing we can do to alleviate the cold. I can't build a fire because the wind was blowing too hard. No, you can't even start a fire. All we could do was to huddle up with one another. Literally the whole night, we just hug one another. <laughs> you imagine all these boys hugging each other. It was uh, it's no fun, but it was miserable. <laughs> we, we just had to do it in order to survive the cold. And I understood Verse 11, really well. If one lies down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? We can't. The point is this. We need community. We need one another. And I tell you, in life, the worst kind of cold is not the physical cold. It's emotional coldness. And you know how many people there are that are living in emotional coldness? We live in a society like this. There are many, many lonely people crying out for a friend. There are so many who are estranged from their families, their loved ones, feeling neglected and forgotten. And we need to think about this, really. When it comes to comfort, we need community. I'll leave you one last thing. When it comes to defense, you have better protection. If you look at verse 12 now, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. One of the dangers that travellers face in you know, travelling through Palestine is, is a danger of attacks by robbers and by thieves and by animal, wild, wild, wild animals. And with a companion, one can provide mutual defence and better protection. Even in the church, right, when the young people go to camp, one of the first things we tell all the young people, right, especially the girls, is that if you need to go to the toilet at night, you always bring another person with you. Never go alone. Am I correct? Do we still do that in kinetics? Oh, yeah, okay, good. (laughs) Why? I'll tell you why. Because we all know, right, that we still live in a world that can be very unfriendly and sometimes fraught with danger. Walking alone, One can be overwhelmed, but when there is someone else, we can protect one another. When we live together, cooperation is better than competition. The old Jewish motto, uh, Swedish motto, will apply here. It says, shared joy is double joy. Shared sorrow is half a sorrow. It's true, right? If I got something happy, I come and tell uh, Haram. So what happened after that? Both of us walk away happy. So my joy is doubled. But if I got a burden, 
and I needed to share it with someone, I share it with Arthur. Arthur walks away, he takes half of my burden, I carry the other half. <laughs> so, shared joy is double joy. Shared sorrow, half a sorrow. But if you've got nobody to share it with, then we're in trouble. And in this red race, individualistic society, we have to choose to be different church. We choose to cooperate rather than to compete. And we do need that. And I think in this very, very lonely world, there are more people looking for friends than there are looking for competitors. And as a church, this is one of the best things we can do is to reach out to people who are looking for a friend. There's an old song the, during my season. Uh, we, we love listening to the songs of a, a, a couple of guys, old foggies, called Simon and Garfunkel. Remember that group? Oh, I love these two guys. Paul Simon, uh, in the 60s, he wrote a song that shot to the top of the chart and it stayed there right up to today. Today, you can still find their songs being played millions of times on the, on the YouTube. He, wrote, he, he gave his people of the Red Race season a song to sing that hit the top of the chart. The second verse of the song goes like this. When you're down and out and when you're on the street, when evening falls so hard, I will comfort you. I will take your part. Oh, when darkness comes and pain is all around, like a bridge over troubled waters, I will lay me down. Remember that song? Like a bridge over troubled waters, I will lay me down. Now, before we get carried away, <laughs> and you notice what the last line says, right? It says, like a bridge over troubled waters, I will lay me down. In other words, I will be your bridge. In your times of trouble, let me be your bridge. You can step on me and get across to the other side. I am totally committed to you. And two is better than one. We all need community. And church, can I just remind us again, where is the best place for you to see all these four things happen when you have better, you know, in support, in work, you know, in, com in, in, com in comfort and all of this? Where is the best place to see this happen? I'll tell you where. I think it's in the connect groups. It is, that's why we have connect groups. The connect groups is where you find those relationships and where you find cooperation. And I think everyone in FCC must belong to a connect group. Okay? Huh? Surprise, nobody shout amen. <laughs> I'll say it one more time because I think you all were not awake just now. I'll say it one more time. Everyone in this church should belong to a connect group. What do you think? I think so. Because the Connect Group is where we find what we need, the community that we need, so that together we will do better. Amen. Let me end with this. Solomon gave us two key lessons, right, after observing the world of success and accomplishment. And he said contentment is better than contention. Cooperation is better than competition. And it's all rooted in this one guiding principle that relationship, community is more important than all the things we can have. Really, community, relationship is better than money. It's better than all the materialistic possessions we can have. And Solomon actually finished his advice with one of his most insightful lines that he ever wrote. 
and it goes like this. He ends by saying, a threefold cord is not easily broken. And we all know that's true. The best kind, any rope maker will tell you the best kinds of, the strongest ropes are those who have three strands with together. If you've got one strand, it's too weak, it can break easily. If you've got uh, two strands, just two, it, is, it has too much friction, there's too much contact, and as a result, it can break easily also. If you've got four, one of them is useless. <laughs> but if you've got one, and then with two that entwines around it, that becomes the strongest cord and it's not easily broken. And I think Solomon was writing almost prophetically, what he's saying is this, two is good, but three is even better. A threefold cord is not easily broken. Me and you is good, but me, you and Christ, we become unbreakable. Are you with me? You and me, great. But me, you, and Christ together, we become unshakable. It becomes an unbreakable union. And the truth is this, whether you are rich or poor, you are educated or illiterate, whether you are cultured or simple, we all need God. And with God, then everything takes on a brand new purpose. Solomon told us it's better for us to embrace contentment and cooperation. We need one another. But today, the Holy Spirit will remind us also it is best when we can embrace commitment to Christ because together, together, we all need God. Me and you, wonderful. Me, you, and Christ makes us unshakable. And may God help us to make us unshakable. Amen. Would you stand with me, please, this morning? Thank you, Lord. We invite the worship team, uh, just quickly come and... I think it's so appropriate if we can sing that beautiful song one more time before we close. In Christ alone. In Christ alone. And then you, me, and Christ together, we become unshakable, unbreakable. And then we let the Lord speak to us, okay? Why don't we all declare this together? In Christ alone, I put my trust. Mm. Thank you, Jesus.